Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. The new poll question was simple. It had to be. It was, after all, meant for Trump voters. We're interested in how you describe where you feel you get information that is true. For each of these general sources, do you feel what they tell you generally is true? Trump voters answers. 63% said they felt what friends and family told them is true. 56% said conservative media figures tell them what's true. 42% said religious leaders do. And 71% said Trump tells them what's true. It's a cult. It's an unambiguous, inescapable, stranglehold cult. They believe Trump more than they believe their own families or believe Tucker Carlson or those nice pastors, Robert Jeffress and Paula White. Trump, 71%. And that doesn't mean only 71% of them believe Trump is telling them the truth or that they think Trump is only telling the truth 71% of the time. Those answers could easily approach 100%. This is who they trust most for the truth. You don't want to know where medical scientists and corporate leaders and social media influencers finished. It is some comfort, I suppose, that among not the Trump voters in this new CBS poll, but in the likely Republican primary voters, President Biden is still slightly ahead of the last place liberal media figures, 10% to 8 
It's a cult. It is a cult. As surely as Jim Jones and Johnstown were a cult, and Marshall Applewhite and Heaven's Gate were a cult, and Hitler and his Nazis, and Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party. Up is down, and lying is truth, and the leader is the oracle, and in a time of uncontrolled conspiracy theories, it's all that much worse. And it is not a coincidence that even in a time when religion, and I mean religion incorporated as opposed to spirituality or faith, when religion is more intertwined than ever with politics, Trump is still trusted for truth 48% more often than those religious leaders. He is the religious leader in this cult, and the key ingredient to accepting a cult leader or a religious leader or both is to pretend he has absolved himself of his sins and therefore will and can absolve you too. And I think, I think this madness is actually made up of a series of smaller madnesses neatly welded together by happenstance and opportunity. If you believe your life has been a failure or you do not have the money you deserve because it was given to the minorities, Trump is your man. If you believe the gays are taking over and making your kids do gay things, Trump is your man. If you believe the Democrats are communists who are going to communize you, whatever that is, Trump is your man. If you believe it's all a movie and Q is pulling the strings on your behalf, Trump is also your man because people living these lies to themselves are obsessed only with those lies, those specific lies. They are immune to being interested up or down with any of the other lies. You live your life within the Q fantasy, but you, you really aren't a white supremacist. What do you care if Trump is? What do you care if his other supporters are? That's irrelevant. He's the Q guy. He has a coalition here, coalition of hate. I don't know how we get out of it. That 71% number next to Trump's name is the single most frightening political poll result I have seen in 25 years of doing this. And the parallel number just among those Republican primary voters, including the 30 to 40% who are not supporting Trump, in that, he slips to second place in the list behind friends and family, but he's still at 53%. And another 27% of them think he's mistaken, but not lying. Only 22% actually think he is lying. Spoiler alert, I know him 40 years. He's lying. He's always lying. I don't know how we get out of this cult because the rest of us can't just disenfranchise a lot of them and we can't educate them, and we can't correct them. And God knows, if there were a vaccine for this illness, they not only would not take it, but would reaffirm most of their paranoia, and the 71% would probably push up to 80% or more. But I do know all cults end the same way. There are wars and bloodshed and disruption and chaos, or in the small cults, there's just death. And at the end, the human god is dead in a bunker or a pile. And if you're lucky, after a sentence of death from a court somewhere. All cults end the same. And oh, by the way, this thought has already occurred to them, too, inside their crazy world, which really has begun to look like bad fan fiction based off the real world. 
Perhaps it's years of reading those Q posts about military tribunals and Democrats being hanged and then replaced by body doubles. And I just want to ask one of them, why would you bother to do that? And then they could look at me and go, body doubles, Melania Trump. Then I'd be stuck for an answer. And more practically, perhaps it is years of Trump demanding the execution of spies and traitors and drug dealers and anybody else he doesn't happen to like at the moment. But whatever is in that soup, here's what it does to you. You may recall that freshman Georgia state senator who wrote to the governor last week demanding a special session of the Senate in Georgia so he can start a vote to defund the office of Fonnie Willis. He's the new state senator and bulldozer owner and world-class auctioneer, and he's the one with the eyes on the opposite sides of his head. His name is Colton Moore, and reality be damned, Senator Moore is convinced that all 19 of those indicted in the Fulton County case face death by lethal injection. You heard me, death by lethal injection. We have a district attorney here who's taking my tax dollars, my constituents' tax dollars, my fellow Georgians' tax dollars, and is using it for political persecution. And to an extreme that these 18-plus Donald Trump that are indicted could potentially face the lethal injection here in Georgia. And, I mean, John, I'm 29 years old. I'm, I'm not going to live the rest of my life worried about this Gestapo tactic tyranny going on in my state. I don't know how to bring Colton back into this universe. I don't. And I don't know what to do with all the other Coltons. Or when you see some of Colton in, say, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, or Marge Green, or Gozar from Arizona, or when it's convenient for him, Kevin McCarthy. I do know that even when Trump is dead, many of them, most of them, won't believe he's dead, or they will believe he will soon rise from the dead. I mean, the returning Jesus trick is now in its 1,990th year, which is a long time for the band to make the audience hang around for the encore. Where do you feel you get information that is true? Religious leaders, 42%. Conservative media figures, 56%. Friends and family, 63%. Trump, 71%. Back in this matrix, Trump has bailed out of the Republican hate debate Wednesday. He's apparently bailed out of the additional Republican debates going forward. He's even bailed out of his own scheduled news conference today, and we know why that is. He reveals his cowardice only occasionally, but always unmistakably. You can do anything. Grab him by the pusillanimous. We now also know with virtual certainty that Trump also wimped out in his opportunity to upstage Wednesday's debate. After days of rumors about this, The Guardian reported late yesterday that Trump's people are in negotiations to have him surrender for his booking at the Rice Street Jail in Atlanta on Thursday or Friday, rather than try to have it go head to head with the debate on Wednesday night. Might have been a stretch to show up at exactly the hour they are throwing out the first Russian talking point in the Milwaukee debate, 9 p.m. Eastern. But as a jail spokesperson noted, quote, the jail is open 24-7. I'll add, just like the Waffle House. I will confess I think Trump missed his chance here. To wait until Thursday gives at least Chris Christie and hell, at this point, DeSantis, 
What has he got to lose after calling Trump's cultists empty vessels? It gives Christie and, and DeSantis the chance to address Trump's latest indictment during the debate. There are many imponderables about whether the air is coming out of Trump's balloon yet, but there can be no question that after he and Eric Bowling finished fourth in the cable news ratings week before last, it is clear that a Trump interview, especially one on tape, is no longer guaranteed to control the narrative, even if it does include Tucker Carlson's comeback attempt. Hey, remember Tucker Carlson? Trump is assuming that his tired act will not wind up giving his rivals full reign over the news cycle Wednesday night and, depending on whether or not Trump waits until Friday to get booked in Atlanta, all or part of Thursday as well. Besides, Trump is really making two long bets on Wednesday. What if his interview with Carlson is an audience washout compared to the debate or just doesn't dominate the debate? They have already recorded this interview. I realize that Trumpists are always the least sharp tools in the shed. In fact, they're the ones that have been out in the rain for six years. But how often does a political interview of any kind for any viewer stay fresh in the can for four or five days? I mean, this thing was recorded long before they had any clue where they were going to try to air or stream the thing. And Fox's willingness to sue Carlson to get him to stick to their still active contract could really screw it up for Trump. Plus, it has now become so commonplace and routine that this other thing is etched into our psyches like the local street signs and the way the sun sets comes sooner every August night. Trump getting booked for crimes just ain't what it used to be in the good old days of last April. What the hell does he do if the Republicans without him get an audience number that beats his interview with Carlson in real time on Wednesday and then also beats coverage of his perp walk on Thursday or Friday? Trump will have enough trouble perp walking the tightrope that is the subject of the debates as it is and with the website Bet Online placing the over-under for his weigh-in at the Atlanta jail at 273.5 pounds, any tightrope will be huge trouble for him. Just last October, his Nosferatu-like advisor, Stephen Miller, insisted if you're too afraid to have a moderated political debate, then you are definitely too weak to take on the drug cartels laying siege to Arizona, unquote. And in September 2020, the other Miller, Jason, the one with the perfectly symmetrically round head, wrote, if Joe Biden is too scared to debate, he's too scared to run the country. Although all of the fascists, not just Trump, all of them exist solely for programming, for stunts and publicity grabs, there's also something practical here. Any argument Trump gives for not debating the other Republicans this week or later will be draped around his neck this time next year as the real debates loom and he cannot beat Biden without them. And Biden would risk almost nothing by not doing them. Still, Zooming out for a moment, you do get the feeling that the other Republicans will be fortunate to get through the Wednesday debate without at least three of them falling off the stage. I have no metaphor here. I'm saying I'm expecting at least three of them to fall off the stage. DeSantis has another devastating leak out of his campaign now. First was the debate prep paperwork story which might as well have consisted of 737 different pages of the instruction, stare daggers at them. 
Now comes some stuff handed to the Washington Post, in which campaign fundraisers have literally written down how they had planned to sell access to DeSantis. The Post has an email from his top fundraiser, Heather Barker, in 2019, reading, quote, I could sell golf for 50K this morning. A Florida lobbyist and his wife wanted to play around with the then new governor, and Barker was explicit about how the donation could be arranged. All that was missing from the email was the subject matter, I'm going to go peddle influence now. Wink emoji. Meanwhile, last night, Vivek Ramaswamy may have gotten his naivete caught in the door. Or his Vivek. The website Semaphore quoted two sources who said Ramaswamy had complained to Newsmax boss Chris Ruddy that he wasn't getting enough coverage on the Newsmax channel, network, stream, whatever. Ruddy, quote, suggested a solution, Ramaswamy told associates, buy more television ads on the network, unquote. The way Semaphore positioned this story, they do not have Ramaswamy saying that he was promised more news coverage if he bought more commercial time, but that was the implication that he, Ramaswamy, made. I am the last guy on earth here to defend Newsmax. But it responded to this story with a flat, angry denial hinting at legal action and Ramaswamy's tone deafness about everything would seem to include things like the fact that candidates do buy ad time on television outlets, whether they are shiny or sketchy. As a spokesman told Semaphore, quote, if candidates want to reach our audience outside of our programming, then of course advertising would be a good way for them to do this. This is the basis of all political advertising, unquote. I think <sighs> Newsmax is right here. Well, another tooth just popped out of my mouth. Back to the prosecutions, and this is hardly a shock, but it seems to confirm the operating assumption of the last few weeks. ABC News reports Mark Meadows told Jack Smith's office that, quote, he could not recall Trump ever ordering or even discussing declassifying broad sets of classified materials before leaving the White House, nor was he aware of any standing order from Trump authorizing the automatic declassification of materials taken out of the Oval Office. It also reports that in an early draft of the prologue to the Meadows book, and remember, it was Meadows' ghostwriter and his publisher to whom Trump is heard showing off Mark Milley's Iran war plan, there was a description in the first version of Trump having a classified battle plan, quote, on the couch in his office at Bedminster. Meadows apparently told investigators he took it out and on his own impetus because it would have been, quote, problematic to reveal Trump had possession of that document. But an audio tape of him, possibly supplied by Mark Meadows' people, brandishing that document around like he was showing off a 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card, that would not have been problematic, I guess. Mike Pence told ABC in response to this on the record that he wasn't aware, quote, of any broad based effort to declassify documents and said if there had been anything like that, Meadows would have known. And as an aside, Trump's spokesperson, the one who wrote the Georgia report he was supposed to reveal today, but pusillanimous out, Liz Harrington says Trump is ready to primary any congressman who will not vote to defund Jack Smith's office. Frankly, I don't know if this is true. 
or if it's just aspirational, to borrow a recently popular word. Trump's record on primarying people is dismal, and a bunch more losses could do him more harm than Smith can. Can't let the cult see you fail. On Friday, something even more fascinating and clearly less clear had emerged from all the prosecutions relative to January 6th. CNN's K-File found repeated instances of one of the architects of the fake electors scheme, the Trump attorney Kenneth Cheeseborough, indicted in Atlanta, but not, and just an unindicted co-conspirator in Washington, Kenneth Cheeseborough marching to and around the Capitol on January 6th with Alex Jones, crazy Alex Jones, and being photographed with Ali Alexander? I've posited previously here that a direct link between Trump and the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers would be lethal to him. I don't think Cheesebro is it. He's close, but he's not even as close as Ronnie Jackson knowing to call the Oath Keepers for help during the violence at the Capitol or Roger Stone's ubiquitous presence alongside the scum of the earth that whole month. I mean, the other whole scum of the earth besides him. Which brings us back to the cult. There is a UFC fighter, that's mixed martial arts, and his name is Colby Covington, and he is fully a member of this cult, and he went on Ingram's show for some reason, and she asked him, possibly as a result of the last date we went out on in 1998 when she had, I believe, 10 Cosmopolitans just as the nightcap, and then her head started bobbing like a nodding dog statue. Ingram asked him, who would win in an MMA fight between Trump and Joe Biden? Well, now, I don't think you would be expecting any taped interview with a fighter to appear on Ingram's show and him say, oh, Biden, absolutely. But still, Covington said Trump, quote, would drop a MAGA bomb on Biden. The thing with Biden is, you know, he can't even ride a bike. Okay. Look at Trump. He's going out to three rallies a day, flying across the country. Laura added, he had stamina. She's helpful like that. Stamina for days, Covington resumed. He's a cardio king. You've seen his hands. Those things are lunchboxes. Snackums, maybe. If he hits you with these hands, you're going to sleep. It's night-night. He said this out loud. And then they put it on television. Even though Covington believes the exact opposite of the truth about Biden and bicycles, and there's the whole lunchboxes, snackums thing, and even though Trump has not exercised since playing college baseball, and he can barely lift his hands above his chest, and he can't walk down an incline without a hands-on guide, and most imperatively, Trump would get the crap beaten out of him by... Laura Ingram. Now, you're just going to have to trust me on that one. Also of interest here, stochastic terrorism against random members of the public is here now in Southern California. She had a pride flag hanging from her store, so now she is dead. That's next. This is Countdown. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, Dateline Lake Arrowhead, California. If you think I overworked that phrase, stochastic terrorism, think again. Think of the libs of TikTok psychos and everybody who has encouraged hatred and distrust of the LGBTQ community like Ron DeSantis. Friday night, an as-yet-identified assailant went to fashion designer Lori Carlton's clothing store in Southern California, ripped down the pride flag she had hanging outside, and when she confronted him about it, he shot her to death. She was the mother of nine. The murderer fled, was confronted by police, and killed. This is a hate crime. It is hate encouraged by, and often directed stochastically by, the Republican Party. The sooner we start recognizing this, the sooner we can begin to do things to remove the threat that party and its cult members represent, represent just to letting everybody not get killed. Dateline Connecticut, Sage Steele steps out of the worst persons list. My former SportsCenter co-host, it has to have been less than 10 shows, I'm guessing that, by counting my scars, really stepped up and stepped into it by announcing that she was a guest on The View 
And while waiting in the green room with Whoopi Goldberg and Barbara Walters, this happened, quote, Barbara was standing over here in front of me. She just started to back up toward me and looked at me and got close and elbowed me. And it pushed me back into the wall and the trash can. I was like, what did she just do to me? This 140-year-old woman just tried to tackle me, unquote. Everything there is to know about Sage Steele is in that quote. First, she slimed a woman who cannot defend herself because she's dead. Secondly, she tried to tear down the rep of somebody who did something for other women in media, unlike Sage Steele. And maybe worst of all, or best of all, Sage Steele just revealed that a five-foot-four-inch woman who was 43 years older than she was was able with just her elbow, to knock a 5-foot-11-inch woman into a garbage can. As the kids say, Sage, weird flex, but you do you. Dateline Los Angeles, fresh off the rather remarkable development that Dennis Prager, who the last time I saw him was a graveyard talk show host on local radio in Los Angeles, has managed to get his Prager U videos, starring such educators as Adam Carolla and Michael Knowles, into the school system in Florida. Dennis Prager may have actually managed to now get them removed just as quickly. Prager continues to bail water after a glorious decade or so in which he would speak this or that given prejudice or hatred and his audience would say, you were right, every time he voiced one of them. This makes one a little sloppy, I guess. Prager went on another conservative streaming show and insisted that while, say, masturbating to child pornography was evil, no, he didn't think uh, the other thing was masturbating to animated child pornography. No, that was not evil. Would you use the word evil of animated child pornography? Because no, I, I certainly I, would. I, I, no, I would use evil only with behavior. That's where we might differ, yeah. forgetting the sex issue. You can't be evil. You didn't do evil if you thought evil. You I, did if evil I'm if masturbating you to animated pictures of pornography, I'm not doing something evil. That's correct. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's despicable. Yeah. Really? Yes, of course. Ever since, Dennis Prager has been appearing on other conservative programming, trying all at once to make this seem like no big deal and not at all like a mental illness, while explaining it's not what he really meant, while refusing to just come out and say, no, I was wrong, it is evil. This might be a good moment to explain something a psychologist friend of mine once explained to me, the they-are-more-guilty-than-I-am explanation. Every time you see a fervent anti-groomer arrested for child molestation or a homophobe caught with a male sex worker or or you know four of them every time you see a fervent anti-abortionist who turned out to have paid for his mate's abortion herschel walker congressman james comer etc it's the they are more guilty than i am explanation in progress the crusader who gets caught doing the very thing they are crusading so loudly against, my friend explained, is doing something they think is wrong or evil or whatever, usually in private, usually in secret, usually with great shame. They can't or won't stop, usually can't. So to rationalize it, to live with it, they become as completely opposed to whatever it is as possible. In their minds, this hypocrisy takes on a kind of numerical value. If their personal guilt at, say, you know, just to pick something at random, masturbating to animated child pornography, if their internal sense of guilt about that is, say, a 75 on a scale of 1 to 100, they think that if they fight 
and ruin and even kill others who do the same thing, if they do that so much and so fervently that their opposition to animated child pornography becomes a 90, they're no longer actually guilty of it because their fight against it is 20 points more than is their partaking in it. Nothing to do with this Prager guy, mind you. Just mentioning it. Still ahead. Oh, it is that time of year again. Thursday is the anniversary. 43 years. Did your mom ever say, don't run for a train, there will always be another one? Came the day when I demonstrated what mom meant. Keith catches the number seven subway train with his forehead. Next in things I promise not to tell. First, time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze? Well, it's a tie. Elon Musk, James Wood, and this clown Buchanan, a.k.a. Cat Turd, Again, democracy survives not by the efforts of those of us trying to preserve it, but by the idiocy of those seeking to destroy it. In December, Woods, who used to be an actor 30, 35 years ago, suggested that in buying Twitter, Musk might have saved democracy. Not long after, Musk began to amplify the racist crap of this guy Buchanan, cat turd, and Buchanan began to praise him on a daily basis. Then last week, Musk announced that he would be eliminating the block feature. He didn't say this, but he did this to stop users from blocking advertisers. Woods complained in defense of the block and against the advertisers. Musk replied, then delete your account. Cat Dirt Buchanan promptly criticized Musk for eliminating the block, and Musk, who says he is, remember, eliminating blocks, promptly blocked James Wood and Cat Turd. I mean, honestly, at this point, it's like the plot of a telenovela. The runner-up, Fox's Janine. Page 10 is missing. Piro, if you need Fox and the fascists in microcosm, she authored a series of angry posts over the weekend about her Jaguar breaking down and Jaguar repair leaving her stranded in the parking lot of a Dunkin' Donuts in the Bronx with pictures. Ms. Pirro, who is 72 years old, 72 years old, 72, ah, age and IQ. She's shown in these photos dressed in a light white top and orange shorts, like, like she works at Hooters. If there's a Hooters in the Villages retirement home for Nazis near Orlando. We haven't heard anything from her since the last post. She may still be in that parking lot. But our winner, Ron Headland, who is identified as a 7th District Representative of the Virginia GOP Central Committee. And you know who else had Central Committees? Headland posted supportive selfies with Trump in the past, so we think we know where he's coming from. And by his own admission, Headland has taken a banner to a high school baseball field in Glen Allen, Virginia. Lots of people do that. What's the problem there? Well, this banner, Headland boasted, was 16 feet long and displayed a penis with the words Biden sucks on it 
and Hedlund then took video of some of the 16-year-old boys holding the penis banner, and he uploaded the video of the 16-year-old boys holding the giant penis banner to social media sites. And I forget, what do you call people who like to take photos of teenage boys holding giant phallic images? What are those people called again? Hmm. I, don't know. I don't remember it later. Virginia's 7th District GOP Central Committee Rep. Ron, make America... Wait, that's what the G in MAGA stands for? Headland, today's worst person in the world! Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So finally to our number one story on the countdown on my favorite topic, me, and things I promise not to tell. Although truth be told, I have been telling this story now for 42 years. On Sunday, the 24th of August, 1980, I learned what mom meant when she had said, never run for a train, there'll always be another one. 
Because I didn't know what it meant, I nearly killed myself, I permanently altered my health, and I put myself on a path towards meeting the great Dr. Renee Richards. I was sleeping late in my relatively new and tiny studio apartment on 55th Street in Manhattan, apartment 10F, when above me, 11F started making noise, like pounding on the floor. And now it's 8.30 Sunday morning, and I'm awake, and I'm not due at my job as a radio sportscaster until about 2, and I think, well, I'm up. Oh, the Dodgers are playing the Mets at Shea. I can go do my other job as a semi-professional photographer and go shoot the Dodgers and still make it to work on time. So I pack my semi-professional emphasis on the semi-photographer's bag and drag myself out on the subway and get to Shea Stadium around 11.30 a.m. And there's nobody there. No Dodgers players, no Mets players, nobody but the groundskeepers. And as the minutes pass, I'm beginning to calculate when I have to leave in order to not be late to my job back in Manhattan. Weekend life in New York City in 1980 might as well have been 1910. I tell people this, they do not believe me. But when I worked weekends the next year in Times Square, I used to call into my newsroom from a payphone on Fifth Avenue and say, okay, I'm going to Arby's today, who wants what? or McDonald's or Burger King or wherever, because our office was in Times Square, and on weekends, there were no restaurants open in Times Square. You could not get food in Times Square on weekends. Today, the same four-square block area probably has 50 restaurants and fast food places. So the train back to Manhattan from Shea Stadium in Queens ran once every half an hour on that Sunday in August of 1980. And as I looked at my watch, I realized I should have left the field three or four minutes ago. If you went out the press entrance and exit at Shea Stadium, you could see the train approaching the elevated station out behind right field. And if you had just seen it, if it had just become visible, and if you then ran your fastest, you could make it to the viaduct that crossed the parking lot and led you up towards the station platform. And if you could get your subway token out and into the turnstile slot with one fluid overhand motion, and if you kept running all the time, you could just make the train. If you didn't, you would be waiting half an hour, unless maybe the next train was late or on fire somewhere. Sure enough, as I got out of the ballpark, I could see the Manhattan-bound train just appearing at the horizon. I was 21, my knees still worked, and I ran. And I got into the viaduct, and I got the token out of my pocket, and I got it into the slot like Daryl Dawkins doing a tomahawk slam. And I not only made the train, but I made it by so much that I styled. I celebrated. I congratulated myself. I was guilty of premature jocularity. I could have just slowed to a triumphant jog and gotten a seat, huffing and sweaty, but eminently satisfied and on time for work. But no, I decided to make an exultant, joyful leap. The next thing I registered was the loudest sound I had ever or have since ever heard, as if 600 gongs had gone off simultaneously, or a dozen church bells, or every alarm clock that had ever awakened me from the deepest of sleeps. Something like this, but inside your head. Bong! 
When it happened was, forgetting that I was no longer six feet tall, as I had been even two years before, but was now just under six four, my leap had ended with me slamming my forehead on the flat metal bar just above the train doorway. An inch higher, I might have blinded myself. The bar an inch above the doorway is, in fact, as I found out later, the thickest piece of metal on a New York City subway train. As it was, my momentum carried me safely into the train. I hit the floor. I saw my sunglasses go flying off and rattling down towards the back of the train like a plastic rat. I heard the train doors close. I felt the blood on my head and in my hair, and I crawled up onto the plastic bench seating behind me. The mass gong sound continued in my head, and my first cogent thought was to see the blood on the train floor and think, oh, I have spilled blood all over their train, and I don't have anything to clean it up with. Similar nonsense continued to bounce around my concussed size 8 noggin for seconds, maybe minutes. It was beginning to really hurt, and of more practical import, the bleeding had not really stopped. At this point, an older woman sitting more or less across from me handed me a small packet. It was a wet wipe. I mumbled thanks, opened it, dabbed it on my forehead for a second, and was surprised to find it instantly inundated with blood. This was the first time it occurred to me that I might be in real trouble on the number 7 local train to Grand Central and Times Square. Apparently, this thought occurred simultaneously to the woman with the wet wipes and to her friend, I think you're kind of hurt, one of them said to me. Let's get you to the hospital. There's one a couple blocks from the next stop. Now, understand this situation. The New York of 1980, and particularly the subways of 1980, were not nice places. Two years later, I took a rush hour train to my job at CNN at the World Trade Center and was annoyed to find one guy who had sprawled himself over three seats with a newspaper covering his face. Nine hours later, when I went home, I got onto a train and saw the same guy with the same newspaper on the same seats because it was the same train and, more importantly, because he was dead. Anyway, it was now around 12.45 of a Sunday afternoon. If it had been night or, indeed, certain other times of the day or on other train lines, I would have simply been the easiest mugging victim in New York history. Somebody could have knocked me over and taken my wallet with next to no effort. Hell, they could have asked me for my wallet, and I was so dazed I probably would have said, Sure, have a nice day. Got any wet wipes? Instead, I met not one but two good Samaritans who knew where the hospitals were in a part of town I could barely find on a map. Sure enough, they helped me to my feet, walked me down the steps and to the two blocks or so that separated us from Elmhurst Hospital. And when I reassured them I was clear-headed enough to get into the emergency room by myself, they wished me luck and they would not even accept my offer of two tokens to get them back on the subway. There should be a monument to these two women somewhere. If the New York City subways of 1980 were scary, the emergency rooms of its hospitals were something out of a Brian De Palma film. I think there were a couple of dozen people in the ER. I remember one of them asking me how I got so bloody, and I explained, and he said, you should go ahead of me. And he opened his windbreaker to show a blood-covered shirt, and he added, the bullet only grazed me. I know I waited about two hours. During that time, I had a singular experience which has informed my understanding of concussions and traumatic brain injury ever since. The desk nurse asked me for the name of a contact, preferably a family member. I gave my father's name, Theodore. 
Then she asked me for my full name, and when I went to say it, I could not remember my middle name. Could not remember my middle name. Keith, I got. Olderman, I got. That was it. My middle name is also Theodore. I could remember Theodore, my dad, but not Theodore, my middle name. That is how fragile your brain really is. Think of that the next time you see somebody get clocked in a sporting event. There was some comic relief. I called into my office at United Press International's audio network and explained to the news editor, a veteran named Ed Karens, the most dapper man in radio history who looked like the actor Ray Collins from Citizen Kane. I told Ed I had just sort of almost, you know, killed myself on the subway coming in from Queens, and I really didn't know when or if I would be at work. About 45 minutes after that conversation, the desk nurse started shouting my name, and I thought, okay, I'm finally going to be brought in to see a doctor. No, it was Ed Karen's calling from UPI. My bosses were all very sorry that I was wounded, he said, but there was nobody available to fill in for me, so when could they expect me to be in the office? I explained I did not know that since I was technically still bleeding to death. 45 minutes more passed, and again the nurse summoned me and said there was a phone call, and this time I was sure it was my dad. Keith, Ed Karen's again at UPI. He explained that my boss now said that they would bring in the guy who was supposed to do the next morning sportscast, my college friend Peter Schack now, but they expected me to do his shift starting at 4.30 in the morning. I explained to Ed that I would try, but that honestly, I didn't know where I was or what time it was now. Two nice ladies had mentioned the name of the hospital, but I really wasn't remembering too well. Plus, I was still bleeding to death. Needless to say, I did not bleed to death. I survived. It was a severe concussion, but it only took a stitch and a half to actually close that wound. And the ER doctor and the nurses were outstanding, and they gave me easy-to-remember instructions, plus a note indicating that I should rest for at least 48 hours, just in case Ed Karen showed up at my apartment. No offense to Ed. They told me what symptoms to expect, how to prepare for them, and, and when they would stop. And they stopped like one day earlier. It was a potential disaster that turned into a nothing burger. Or so I thought. Two years later, I was at the original Louis Armstrong Stadium covering the 1982 U.S. Tennis Open. On the other side of the same elevated subway station where I had run into the train. Going there always actually made me laugh. Until the afternoon of Saturday, September 11th, 1982, I was watching the women's final, covering it for CNN, Chris Everett over Hannah Mandlikova, and swinging my head from side to side as one does to follow the tennis action from over here to over there to over here to over there as I had swung my head from side to side for the preceding 12 days of the tournament. Then I swung to the right, but my left eye kept looking to the left. The old Marty Feldman thing, reversed, crossed eyes. That hurt worse than hitting the train had. I could barely stand any light. I often had to keep my hand in front of my eyes. I rushed to my optometrist Monday morning, and he started to laugh. This happened to you during the U.S. Open? I said, yes. Why are you laughing at me? He said, I'm going to send you to the best muscle ophthalmologist I've ever met. I said, so why are you laughing at me? He said, you don't know who that is? I said, no, I let my knowledge of the muscle ophthalmology ranking slip. Why are you laughing at me? He said, the best muscle ophthalmologist I've ever met is Dr. Renee Richards, the transsexual tennis player. I said, 
I, I don't care who you're sending me to. I'm in trouble here. If they can fix this, I don't care who you're sending me to. My train accident was so far in my past that when I got in to see Dr. Richards the next morning, I didn't even think to mention it in my patient history. It didn't matter. 30 seconds of staring into my eyes through a wall-sized foropter. And Renee Richards said, when exactly did you hit your head? August or September of 1980? I was stunned. Uh, I did hit my head in 1980. August 24th. She made a clicking noise of satisfaction. I've heard of this before, but I've never seen it. You couldn't do this again in a million years. The good news is that muscle problem with the eyes, that's just muscle exhaustion. We can fix that with a thing that costs a buck ninety-eight. The bad news is when you hit your head, most of the damage must have been absorbed by your inner ear. If you want to fix that, you'll need brain surgery. I don't recommend brain surgery. Dr. Renee Richards showed me the muscle exercises that cost $1.98 that fixed my reverse crossed eyes. They felt better immediately. I still do the exercises. I did them earlier today. Then Renee Richards said, so you're a sports reporter, it says here? Listen, my next patient isn't due for half an hour. You should rest anyway after my exam. Let's talk about sports reporting. Renee Richards was an expert. Her transition had been outed by a sportscaster. Tucker Carlson's father, if you can believe that. I can believe it. Because she had been a man, when she played in the U.S. Open as a woman, she had become almost instantaneously the most famous tennis player in the world. Then she became Martina Navratilova's coach. I learned more from her in that first half hour of conversation about the ethics of reporting than I had in all of my previous life experiences combined. Plus, she was gas. Renee Richards was hilarious. She was self-effacing. She was a great doctor. And to me, she was the definition of courage. And she, I am proud to say, is still my friend. All because I did not know what mom meant when she said, don't run for a train. There will always be another one. The other phrase I never really understood till then was breakneck speed. Oh, and there is one more punchline here. If the name of that hospital that the two good Samaritans took me to, Elmhurst Hospital, sounds vaguely familiar, it should. It was ground zero when COVID-19 hit, when the pandemic had its hand around New York City's throat. The worst hit community was Elmhurst in Queens, and the worst hit hospital was Elmhurst Hospital. They were in desperate need at that point of ventilators, so I knew what I had to do. You could buy them for cash, legally, so I got two ventilators. I had them delivered, one for each of the ladies who helped me to get off the damn train that day. done all the damage i can do here thank you for listening hey sometime yesterday or maybe late saturday night we crossed the two million audience plateau for august with your help we have an excellent chance at three million for the month tell the others countdown has come to you from our studios high atop the sports capsule building in new york here are the credits most of the music was arranged produced and performed by brian ray and john philip chanel they are the Countdown Musical Directors, of course. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. 
Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my crazy friend Tony Kornheiser. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 957th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow, bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare zumo play is your destination for endless entertainment with a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels movies and full tv series you'll easily find something to watch right away and the best part it's all free love music get lost in the 90s with iheart 90s dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iheart radio music channels no logins no signups no accounts no hassle so what are you waiting for start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and google play stores today all you can stream with zumo Play.